So tonight, uh, I want to talk about the three top motivations in most crime dramas. So if you've watched NCIS or CSI or you know any crime detective show, usually there's three top motives for any crime, and that's power, fortune, and sex. Power and fortune and sex. And it's ironic, I think, that we find those three motivators at the very start of creation. That the enemy, uh, those were his motives. So the fallen entities that inhabited the serpent wanted all three and devised a plan to achieve it. Satan wanted power, fortune, and sex, or we could also say intimacy. He wanted those things because he was stripped of those very things. He was bereaved of those very things by his pride, by his disobedience. And when he found himself confined to earth and confined to the garden, he saw the perfect opportunity to try to regain those three things, power, fortune, and sex. So in Genesis chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, now the serpent, now that Hebrew word serpent is nakash. It does mean serpent, but the deeper Hebrew meaning implies that this is more than just a snake. It implies that it's a fiery serpent. It implies that its, its scales and its skin is an iridescent copper. It, it lends credence to what has been called the shining ones. So the fallen angels, they were called the shining ones. And so we know that on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus shone with a supernatural light, and his clothes became white. He was sending a message to the demonic realm, to the fallen realm, that you think you're the shining ones? I'm the shining one. The fallen ones are also called the Beneha Elohim, the sons of God. But he says, you think you're a son of God? I am the son of God. So we know that Satan, when he fell from heaven, he had a very high-ranking position in God's court. And he had power, fortune, and intimacy and he messed up. Pride entered his heart. He fell. And he was stripped of all those things. And he, he's been spending an eternity to try to get them back. So in Genesis 3.1, it says, But the serpent, the Nakash, so we know that Satan inhabited this, this creature. But the serpent was shrewder than any animal of the field that Adonai Elohim, the Lord God, made. So it said to the woman, Did God really say? You must not eat from the tree, trees of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, Oh, of the tree, of the fruit trees, we may eat. But of the fruit tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it and you must not touch it. Nah, he didn't say that. He just said you shouldn't eat it. God didn't say anything about touching it. She got that from somewhere else. And that is exactly what Satan pounces on and twists. So you must not eat it. And you must not touch it or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, you most assuredly won't die. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now the woman saw that the tree was good for food. So lust of the eyes and that it was uh, that it was a thing of lust for the eyes. Well, it even says that. Um, so she was thinking with her with her head with her stomach and with, you know, with her heart, what she wanted. And the tree was desirable for imparting wisdom. So she took the fruit 
I wonder if Satan said at that moment, you took the fruit, see, you touched it, you're not dead. See, see how that plays in? Or you shall not touch it or you shall surely die. God never said that. But maybe when she picked the fruit and nothing happened, maybe she's like, oh, okay, well, I'm all right. So I guess if I eat it, I'll be all right. She took, the, she took of the fruit and she ate, and she also gave it to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves coverings. So the Satan that was within the serpent had power. Uh, we will read from Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 13 through 19, and we'll find that Satan was once the praise and worship leader of heaven. And he was the, 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 he was the leader of the four living creatures. The four living creatures that shows up in Ezekiel, the four living creatures that shows up in Revelation. You know, one had the head of, of a man, the other the head of an ox, the other the head of a lion, and one the head of the eagle. And they had multiple wings, and they were just these intimidating, powerful creatures. So they represented the entire created realm. But there's an animal kingdom that's missing from the four living creatures, the reptiles and the amphibians. So it is believed that... Satan was the, the fifth living creature, that he was the leader. So, like, when a king is on his throne, especially those portable thrones, those uh, litters, I guess you call them, where they take the poles and put them on their shoulders and they, you know, parade the king through the streets or what have you. Well, that's what the Ark of the Covenant is. It is a portable throne, and it's meant to do just that. So, these four living creatures were supposedly the ones that carried the throne of God, uh, and Satan went before them as Lucifer or Hillel in the Hebrew, and he would, you know, announce that the king is coming, and he would sing praise and worship to God. Uh, so whenever you had a, an earthly king that was carried by four people, you always had somebody in front that was always proclaiming and announcing as the king was coming. That was Lucifer's role. That was Satan's role. He was the praise and worship leader in heaven. And now the four living creatures are all by themselves, and they have to lead their own singing, saying, holy, 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 holy. So number one, he did have power. He was the praise and worship leader in heaven and the leader of the four living creatures, as best we understand. He had fortune. He had access to, um, to um, everything uh, that, he that heaven had to offer. He had access to everything, the riches of heaven, everything heaven had to offer. And Ezekiel says that his clothing was bedecked with many jewels, with many gems. So we're going to read that passage in Ezekiel. So Ezekiel chapter 28. In Ezekiel chapter 28, starting with verse uh, 13. Ezekiel 28, beginning with verse 13. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Ruby, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, emerald. So it also kind of gives the hint that not only Satan was uh, Lucifer, Hillel, uh, whatever name you want to call him, was the praise and worship leader in heaven. It sounds like he almost had a breastplate. Because all those gems are similar to the gems that are in the Levitical priestly breastplate. So it was almost as, he, as if his role was not only praise and worship leader, but he was also kind of like a priest of sorts in heaven. And we know that the Levitical priesthood, they're priests, obviously, but they also have 
squadrons of choirs, if you will. So they do lead praise and worship, and some of these squadrons actually are like the Marines. They're the first ones on the battlefield. It's psychological intimidation. They go out singing the praises of God before even the soldiers go out to fight, to, to psych the enemy out. And so we kind of see in heaven kind of similar, and whatever is on earth, is, is, it comes from heaven. So whatever is on earth, it, it, it has a counterpart in heaven. Uh, it mirrors what's in heaven. So we see that um, you know, Satan had power and fortune before he fell. So, okay, so the end of verse 13 says, In the day you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. So he was a throne guardian. That's what the four living creatures are. They're throne guardians. Not that God needs protecting. The throne guardians are protecting us. Protecting us from the raw power of God. That's what they're really protecting. They're protecting us. So he was a throne guardian along with the four living creatures. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you on the holy mountain of God. You walked among the stones of fire. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until righteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, they, uh, they filled you uh, within, within with violence. So you had sinned. So I threw you out as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I made you vanish, guardian cherub, from among the stones of fire. Your heart was exalted because of your beauty. So apparently, you know, Lucifer, Satan, Hillel was very good looking, very appealing to the eyes. And I mean, just think about it. Even though the Bible says that it was a serpent, Eve must have saw some kind of elegance or beauty in that serpent or she would have never engaged in conversation with the serpent. So there must have been something that attracted to her or intrigued her in some way, shape, or form. Your heart was exalted because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor, and I threw you down to the earth. Before kings, I set you, set you up as a spectacle. By the multitude of your iniquities and your uh, injustice of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from within you, and it consumed you. I have turned you to ash on the earth in the eyes of all who saw you. All who know you among the people will be appalled at you. You have become a horror and will be nothing forever. So this is a little Old Testament prophetic passage regarding the fall of Satan. So we discussed that he had power, that he had fortune, and we just read about those in Ezekiel 28. But there's also that other motivating factor for most crimes and crime dramas, which is sex. But we could also say intimacy because he, he had intimacy with God. He was kind of like God's right-hand man to a certain degree. So we're not talking about sex here, but he did have intimacy with God, which is more satisfactory than sex. But curiosity got to him because man was created a little lower than the angels, according to Psalm 8.5. And thus, humans knew what animals knew and experienced, which the angels were left out of. So there was a little jealousy going on there as well, because angels are called the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God. Then us humans were created, and we ended up being called the sons of God as well. So there's a little jealousy going on. He didn't get angels to inhabit and rule the earth. He got us meat bags 
us dirtbags to inhabit and rule the earth. Well, we're not as elegant and as powerful as the angels. It's almost like we're half angel, half a half animal in a sense. I mean, we have that intelligence and we have that uh, image of God in our intellect and in our spirit and in our soul, but yet we're flesh and blood like an animal. We eat, we procreate, we defecate like animals do. So the angels are like, I don't get it, God. They're less than. You know, why didn't you choose us? They're less than and you love them. You know, you, it's, it's almost as if you love them more than us. So there's a little bit of jealousy going on there. So I want to read to you Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, which says, Now the man had relations with Eve, his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. So the angels were probably amazed at this because it's something they, they, you know, they've seen in the animal kingdom, but they probably never seen it until then with, with humans who are made in the image of God, but are made a little lower than the angels, and they're made higher than animals. Such a mystery. So here, now the man had relations with his wife, uh, with Eve, his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. Now this harkens back to the prophecy in Genesis 3.15 that says, I will put animosity between you and the woman. So here God is cursing the serpent, and he says, I will put animosity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head and you will crush his heel. So this is the proto-evangelion, as it's called in scholarly circles, that this is the promise that God was going to send a redeemer to reverse the effects of the fall. And so when Cain was born, Eve thought, oh, well, this is it right here. God said it would happen, and boom, here comes Cain, because she ends up saying, um, she says, I produced a man with Adonai, with Adonai's help, with God's help. So maybe Cain was brought up with a big head, thinking, oh, you're the chosen one. You're, you're the firstborn. You know, you're the one that God you know, told us about and everything. And maybe Cain kind of thought more of himself than he, than he did. And when God disapproved of his sacrifice, when him and Abel were sacrificing, he got jealous, kind of like how Satan got jealous in heaven and become prideful. Got some similarities there. So in Genesis chapter one, verses one and two, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was chaos and waste, and darkness was on the surface of the deep, and the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God, was hovering upon the surface of the waters. So this is where it's believed that the fall took place, somewhere between Genesis 1 and 2. Is where, you know, right between those two verses, they believe that's where the fall happened. So the fall stripped the adversary, Satan, Lucifer, Hillel, of all three of power, fortune, and intimacy. Now, as I said before, angels were the top dogs prior to creation of man, mankind, and God decided to favor the lesser than creature of man, and it provoked hatred and jealousy in the fallen angels. Thus began the mission to destroy mankind. So they want to get back at God. The fallen angels have no power or ability to get back at God directly. So what's the next best thing? To get at something he loves. It's like a mob boss. You want to take out a mob boss? He's too well protected. You can't get to him. So the next best thing is to get his family. 
He'll listen if you get his family. So that's why uh, Satan and the fallen angels and the demons hate us so much and want to destroy us. We kind of stole their thunder and took their place in, in a sense. So to get back at God uh, by hurting his beloved children, seeing as they couldn't get to him directly. So though the though the uh, um, see, hang on here. Through the plan of the fall, Satan could regain all three, power, fortune, and sex, or intimacy. So this is how he planned on regaining power. So in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Satan is called the lowercase g, the god of this world. Wait a second, I thought he gave Adam dominion over the world. I thought the world was mankind to rule. Well, that all changed with the fall. Because Adam submitted to Satan by eating the fruit, he, in essence, gave his authority and his dominion over to Satan by acknowledging him as his superior, by obeying him and taking of the fruit. So the reins of dominion and power were stripped from Adam, passed from Adam, and given to, temporarily to Satan. So that was his plan to regain power. What was his plan to regain fortune? So we find that in Matthew chapter 4, when he tried to uh, tempt the Messiah himself. So in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, Then Yeshua was led by the Ruach, that is the Holy Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. You know, it, it's funny. I'm trying hard to get out of the, the, the habit of saying the devil all the time because really the devil doesn't have anything to do with us. Satan doesn't mess with us. We are so low on the totem pole, we are not even anywhere close to being on his radar. The people that are on his radar are the world leaders. Satan is not omniscient or omnipotent or omnipresent like God is, so he can't mess with everybody at the same time. We're small potatoes, small fish to him. He's working on the world leaders. So we see that, you know, there's few people that Satan actually has possessed. One, he possessed a serpent in the beginning. Then he ended up possessing Judas, and he's going to possess whoever the Antichrist is going to be. Those are the only three that I see in Scripture that Satan actually enters. So, you know, we always blame the devil for this or blame the devil for that. So we give Satan way too much credit. It's always the demons that are messing with us. You know, it's some sort of demonic entity that's messing with us. So it's not necessarily Satan or the devil himself, although we often say that. So I'm trying myself to get out of the habit of that because I don't want to give him any extra credit or glory because he's probably, you know, getting a big head by us saying, oh, the devil's persecuting me. Satan's doing this to me. He ain't doing nothing to you. <laughs> it's demons that are messing with you. So it says, then Yeshua was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are Ben Elohim, the son of God. Now that word if could be translated since or if. So the question is, did Satan know at this time that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the son of God? Or was he just trying to figure it out? So that's up for debate. So most translations say, if you are the son of God, if you are Ben, ben Elohim. Uh, there's been a few translations that says, since you are the son of God. So it says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. But he replied, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
Then the devil took him to, a, to the holy city and placed him on the highest point of the temple and said, if you are Ben Elohim, you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written. You, you know, Jesus quoted scripture saying, oh, that's cute. I can quote scripture too. Watch this. So he quotes from the Psalms. He shall command his angels concerning you and upon their hands they shall lift you up so that you may not strike your foot against a stone. And Yeshua said to them, again, it is written, you shall not put Adonai your God to the test. Again, the devil takes him to a very high mountain. Now, this high mountain, we're not exactly sure where it is. Maybe it was Mount Hermon, because that's where the fallen angels, according to apocryphal literature, fell. That was their Mount Olympus that they ruled from. And Mount Hermon was the mountain where Jesus was transfigured. So it might have been there. We don't know. It doesn't say what mountain it was. But again, the devil takes him to a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. Okay, here's the fortune that comes in. Right here, the fortune. He said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. So as Adam bowed down to Satan and took the fruit, handing over the keys to the world to him, and Adam no longer having dominion, if indeed this Jesus character was really the son of God, if Satan could get him to bow down to him and accept his offer of all the kingdoms of the world, well, if you're bowing to Satan, you're not really getting the kingdoms of the world, are you? You're just bowing to the one who already has it. You're just going to be second in command is all that is. So if he was the son of God and he could get the son of God to fall, then he would have the fortune. He would not only have the world and the power, he would have the fortune that goes along with being the son of God. Because all of that by disobedience would have been transferred to Satan himself. So that was his plan to try to get back fortune. But we know ultimately that failed. Thank God. So it says, um, and he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Yeshua said to him, go away, Satan. Now, it's interesting. The word Satan means uh, the adversary or the enemy. That's what really that means. So it's more of a title than a name. Um, Lucifer is Latin. It means light bearer or light bringer. And that's kind of close to what Hillel means. But it all, Hillel also kind of connotates praise, which was his position or occupation in heaven. Uh, so he says, go away, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship Adonai, your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil leaves him and behold, angels came and began to take care of him. Now, how was he going to get the intimacy back? He probably knew he'd never be intimate with God again. He lost that forever. So what's the next best thing he can do? Well, if God created man in his own image, why can't I create man in my own image? So the uh, Genesis 6-4, Genesis 6-4, this is how sex or intimacy comes into play. Because it says in Genesis 6-4, the Nephilim, a lot of translations say the giants, but the word Nephilim means fallen ones. The fallen ones, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God that's the fallen angels. They were called the Beneha Elohim, the sons of God, came to the daughters of men. Other translations is a little bit more blunt, came into the daughters of men. I don't have to go any further. You know exactly what that means. And gave birth to them. And those were the mighty men of old, men of renown. 
So these were the human-angelic hybrids. So here was the plan through sex to also gain power and fortune. Because if he could weed out the pure human DNA, then that prophecy that was told to him in Genesis 3.15 would never happen. Because there would be no pure human genome to bring the Messiah from. It would, been, it would have been corrupted by this hybridization. Now, God created, every, created man in his own image. He created animals and the world and everything the way he wanted. This was the first time that something was produced uh, that was not in God's plan and not in God's image. So this was something outside of God's created order, something outside God had intended. So the thing about it is these giants, these Nephilim, they were oddballs. They didn't belong in creation. So they weren't human, so they couldn't be redeemed. They were half-fallen angel, so they were doomed to destruction. But there was kind of no place to put them at that moment. But ultimately, we know at the end, God is going to judge everything and set everything right. And it's like you talk about the Great Reset. Well, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and everything is going to be reset almost to that Edenic state, better than that Edenic state. So when the flood occurred and wiped out the first race of giants, those disembodied spirits of those giants became what we know as demons today. They're demons. And so we know that giants came afterwards. There was somehow a second incursion of giants where they tried it again for those angels who didn't get locked up for that offense. Maybe there were still some fallen angels left that tried it again or what have you because we know Goliath was one of these giants. We know Og and Sihon, those kings were giants. And so we know it was tried again. And so the conquest of Canaan by Joshua wiped out most of these giants. Now there's archaeological evidence that the giants that escaped went to America and to other parts of the world because there have been giant skeletons found all over the world. So, you know, they, they got out while the getting was good. So here we have this intimacy or this sex. So if he could achieve his goal through corrupting humanity, then there would be no Messiah, and he would have his power, his fortune, and his intimacy by ruling his own corrupted world that God could do nothing about at that point, except if he wanted to wipe it out again. So... As in a crime drama, a good crime drama, the main motivators for committing crimes was power, fortune, and sex. It's interesting that we can see the exact same thing in the biblical narrative. So with God's plan A, which would be Eden and everything just be perfect and Adam and Eve never falling or never sinning, even though God knew that wasn't going to happen because God knows everything, that was his perfect plan. So when that was kiboshed because of man's free will and of submitting to Satan, God's plan B took place. And God's plan B is pretty awesome. We already read in Genesis 3.15 of the prophecy of the seed of the woman coming to rid, uh, rid us of the curse of the serpent. Now, it's interesting because it says seed of the woman. Seed doesn't come from a woman. Seed comes from a man. Women have eggs. Men have seed. So what's the seed of the woman? So even in Genesis 3.15, it hints of the virgin birth. Even from then, you know, and so the seed of the serpent, which tells us that God already knew about Satan's plan to impregnate mankind, the seed of the serpent, because that's exactly what the Nephilim are is the seed of the serpent. So it's interesting that all that. So from Genesis 3.15, we go to Matthew uh, 17, and we'll see like a really neat progression here. All right, Matthew chapter 17, 
starting with verse 1. Everybody still hanging with me? Yes. All right. So it says, so we have Genesis 3.15, the, the proto-evangelion, that prophecy of the coming Messiah that was going to, the virgin birth and the wiping out of the serpent seed. And then we hear, we come to Matthew 17, which I kind of hinted about at the beginning of this lesson. After six days, after six days of what? After six days of Sukkot. After six days of the Feast of Tabernacles, Yeshua was take, uh, takes with him Peter, Jacob, we know as James, and John, his brother, and brings them up on a high mountain. Oh, we heard high mountain in the temptation that Satan brought Jesus to a high mountain, and here's another high mountain. Maybe it's the same high mountain. By themselves. Now, he was transfigured before them, before them and his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, if you will, and Yeshua represents the renewed covenant. So we have all three representation of scripture there. Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with Yeshua. Peter responded to Yeshua, Master, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three Sukkot. I will make three tabernacles. So that's how we know it was the Feast of Tabernacles. I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice from out of the cloud saying, This is my son. So God was saying, This is the B'nai Ha Elohim. This is the Son of God. This is my beloved Son in whom, uh, whom I love. Uh, with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down, terrified, but Yeshua came and touched them. Get up, he said. Stop being afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Yeshua alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, Yeshua com uh, commanded them, saying, Do not tell anyone about this vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. The disciples questioned him, saying, uh, Okay, I think I can stop there. Nope, I'll keep going. Why, uh, why then does the Torah scholar say that Elijah must come first? And Yeshua replied, Indeed, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. I tell you that Elijah already came, and they didn't recognize him, but did to him whatever they wanted, in the same way the Son of Man is about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist, John the Immerser. So John the Baptist was that... Elijah. He came in the spirit of Elijah. Not that he was Elijah reincarnated, which you may hear from some people, but he came in the spirit of Elijah. So there's a possibility that in the end times that Moses and Elijah will come back again during the tribulation because there's two witnesses who are described with powers and abilities and characteristics that sound a lot like Moses and Elijah, but they're not named, so we don't know for sure. So interesting about this Mount Hermon, I already told you that it was the place that the fallen angels fell. And to this day, you can go to Mount Hermon, and at the bottom of Mount Hermon is the Grotto of Pan. Now, Pan was half man, half goat. He was this, you know, goat demon, if you will. And this Grotto of Pan was thought by the people of Yeshua's day to be the entrance of the gates of hell. And that is the place where Jesus said, to Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So there's context there. 
So, all right, so we go from Genesis 3.15 to what I just read in Matthew 17, basically that declaration that he is the shining one, he is the, the son of God, and so now all the demons are scared and on the run, because every time Yeshua encountered them, they said, have you come to destroy us or judge us before the time? Because they, they know what their end is going to be. So you go to there, to John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This is the progression of God's plan B. His, his plan to redeem not only mankind, but to redeem the world and bring it back to an Edenic state before the fall. And so from John 3.16, we go to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah. Gosh, you know, even with these tabs, sometimes I still can't find what I'm looking for. So in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah Jeremiah, there we go. So in Isaiah chapter 11, and it's another thing when you're using the tree of life and you're so used to the Protestant order of books. This is going by the Jewish order of books. That's why it's a little bit harder to find things in the tree of life version because they go by the Jewish rendering. So in Isaiah chapter 11, we read a prophecy about this restoration. So in Isaiah chapter 11, starting with the verse 6, says the wolf will dwell with the lamb. Uh, the wolf's a predator, and the lamb is prey. The wolf eats the lamb. In what world and in what universe does the wolf lay down with the lamb? Well, that happened before the fall. Because before the fall, all animals and even humans were vegetarians. They didn't have to worry about eating each other. So it says in the age to come, the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lay down with the kid, the goat, you know, the kid of the goats and the calf and the young lion and the yearling together and the little child will lead them. <laughs> Even the children will be able to play with wild animals and not get bit or devoured. Then verse seven, the cow and the bear will graze. So Everything's going to go back to that vegetarian state. They're going to eat grass again. Their young ones will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. And a nursing child will play by a cobra hole. No parent would ever do that today. I mean, you may tell your kid go play out in the street, but you'd never tell him to go play by a cobra hole. <laughs> so it says, and a nursing child will play by a cobra hole. And I, I think that's a little dig to Satan, to the serpent, right? You can't hurt us. You can't harm us anymore. Well, that's what it says here. The nursing child will play by the cobra hole, and a weaned child would, will put his hand into a viper den. So, there, so there, the snakes will no longer be venomous or vicious or bite or be threatened by humans anymore. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of Adonai, the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. So we see that God is in, he, we are in midstream of his plan of restoring all things. He's already restored us through salvation. So in Revel, here's the coup de grace, if you will, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. So it's that promise of the restoration of all things. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, 
and the sea was no more. So we know that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was up on the face of the deep. So there was a cataclysm before the earth we have now. It was a pre-edemic earth, and there was a pre-edemic flood that wiped out something. So maybe angels did rule the world at one time, and they messed up, and God just wiped out that civilization. He started again, and that's what we know as the six days of creation and our seven-day week because we rest on the Sabbath. So the first mess up was cleansed by the pre-Adamic flood. The second mess up of, you know, because the Nephilim were going to corrupt all flesh, not just humans, but animals. And so in order to correct that faux pas, another flood had to take place. So that was Noah's flood. Now in the Torah, it says if you're trying to cleanse a garment or, or to cleanse any article, you attempt to wash it twice. And if it can't be washed twice, then you have to cleanse it by fire. So what does Peter say is going to happen to this earth? God already promised he would never flood the entire earth ever again. He's going to burn it. And when you burn something, you renew it. Because the fire, when it burns things, it releases nutrients and, and, and nitrogen and all the things that are good for the soil into the earth. That's why a lot of people in the summertime or the springtime will set fire to their lawns to green it up. And so it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. It was purified. It was refined, just like gold being melted and, and purified in a fire. All the impurities come to the surface. You skim it off. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So it doesn't matter what scheme Satan has to achieve power, fortune, and sex, and or intimacy. We see him try it through history. We see that he's failed each time. He's continuing to try that because as in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man, the Nephilim are going to come back. I don't think we're going to see giants walking around. I think they're going to be more looking like us to where they're not as recognizable. But I did find something interesting. The media always tries to prepare us for what's going to come. How many years have we watched these science fiction films of UFOs and aliens coming? And now the government says, oh, yeah, we have bodies. We've had them all along. We just lied to you the whole time, right? They, they were preparing you by, through the media. And here in the last month, I've seen several commercials with giants in them. <laughs> yeah, have you noticed that too? Where do they get this? I mean, I don't think most of the marketers really understand or know what they're doing, but I think the really high up echelon do, and their ideas trickle down to the lower guys who don't know anything. But it's preparing us because as in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. In the days of Noah, it was corrupt. It was just perversion. And we're seeing that exact same thing take place. It's coming back to that Noahic corrupted state. The only thing that's missing is the obvious Nephilim, which the Bible said it's going to happen. It's going to come. And I believe that maybe that's going to take the guise of these aliens or maybe genetically modified human beings. Or, you know, a lot of people think that Bigfoot and dogmen are types of Nephilim. Uh, they're still ancient Nephilim that uh, are still alive on the earth today because way, let's see, probably about a decade ago, give or take, there was a giant in Kandahar that was killed. By the by U.S. forces, but it was whisked away. Uh, so it's it's the Kandahar giant, and a lot of these guys they've hid their voices and identities, but they've come out on record, you know, that were a part of that group of that giant being killed, and say, "Yep, this really happened." So interesting. So we see that Satan is is, is you know he, he's not an originator. 
He just always recycles his ideas. It's the same old crap, but with a new pretty bow, so to speak. So back then it was the motif of giants, and now it's the motif of aliens or what have you. But we see that uh, uh, history repeats itself, but we know that Satan's ultimately going to lose. His grab for power, his grab for fortune, his grab for intimacy and or sex has been thwarted, and it's going to be thwarted again because I just read to you these passages from Genesis to Revelation, how God is going to restore things. And we get a front row seat to that. All right, let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Lord, I pray that you would keep our hearts and our minds pure and our motivations pure. Because I know that we, as fallen human beings, I mean, we see it in the crime dramas of our day. Uh, the motivation for murder is power, fortune, or sex. And uh, we have that fallen nature. Help us to keep our heart and our mind and our eyes on you and fall madly deeply in love with you and start falling out of love with the world and the things of this world that it doesn't look so good or feel so good or sound so good or taste so good or we don't get the same feeling we used to but we grow disillusioned and dissatisfied because we see through the veneer and see to the rottenness of it and it just disgusts us and that we would gravitate to your word and gravitate to the things of you lord and uh that you would help us to be and do all that you want us and have us to be. And when we get so discouraged because of the state of this world, help us to remember that it was prophesied to be so. Help us to remember that regardless, we're still to be salt and light. And help us also to remember that we win. I mean, it's going to be a hard struggle. Some of us may you know, die in the process, but we win. We get the victory. And one day we will live on the new heaven and the new earth, and it will be a perfect Edenic state for all eternity that Satan can never mess up like he's done this world. We love you, we praise you, and we ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen.